Would you join me in another word of prayer before we look into God's word this morning? Father, beneath the cross of Jesus is where we want to be this morning. We want to be beneath the cross, looking at your word, learning from your word, studying your word. It's all because of what Christ has done for us that this is even a profitable exercise. And so, Holy Spirit, would you come now and help us as we seek to understand and apply and live out what you teach us. I pray this in your name. Amen. Would you take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. And as you're turning there, I'd like, I'd like for you to, for a moment this morning, imagine something. I'd like for you to imagine a world in which there is no conflict. No arguments over what is real and fake news. No conflict over who the best football team is. No threat of tensions boiling over in the Middle East. Imagine a world where there is no heated debate over where you will go for dinner or what you will have for dinner. Basically, imagine a world where humility rules. Every bump or conflict in in our society or in our relationships or among world powers, each of those bumps or conflicts is caused by somebody wanting what they want. For example, Germany wants to control all of Europe and the rest of Europe doesn't want Germany controlling them. So you have war that breaks out. You want to get home from work. Another driver wants to get to the gym, and so they pull out in front of you. How dare they? You want the dishes put away when you get home, and your child wants to get to the next level of Fortnite. You want to relax and watch HGTV. Your spouse wants to watch the game. All of these are opportunities for conflict. At a fundamental level, all of our problems and our relationships are traced back to pride. We think we deserve to have what we want, when we want it, for as long as we want it. And if you try to alter that, or or things don't quite work out quite as much as, as, as you want them to, conflict. Last time we were together, we looked at 1 Peter 2, and we saw that in this big section of of chapter 2, verse 11 through 3 through 12, that Peter is working out what it looks like for his original audience, and by extension, you and I, to live as a pilgrim or exile in this world. We're not native citizens here. We are here for a short time, but primarily we are citizens of God's kingdom. So what does it look like for us to live here during that time? What are the nuts and bolts of being a Christian in a world that is not our home? What's that look like? Well, very clearly in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, Peter says that those things are to abstain from fleshly lusts and live in an honorable way that causes unbelievers to glorify God when they see your good works. So last month, 
We saw that Peter is very careful to point out that our good works don't do anything to take away our sins or make us right before God. That Jesus has taken our sins. That he has sacrificed his son. And this morning we turn our attention to the institution of marriage and examine the instruction that Peter gives the husbands and wives in the churches to whom he is writing. The principle of what Peter discusses in this text applies to all people, regardless of whether you're married or not. The principle of abstaining from fleshly lusts and acting honorably, having your conduct honorable, applies to all of us. So the big idea that we see in our text this morning is this. As strangers in this world, our marriages ought to reflect the love and humility that we see in Christ's sacrifices. So let's look at 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. We're, we're going to walk through the text, make some observations about the text, and then break down how it applies to wives and husbands and the rest of us. So chapter 3 verses 1 through 7 occurs in light of chapter 2 verses 11 and 12. And we've seen three things over the last several weeks that, or the last several months that Paul is getting at that kind of fall under this general command to abstain from fleshly lusts and to have your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. The first thing that we saw is that there is this submission that is supposed to be for rulers that are on this earth. We are to abstain from fleshly lusts and act honorably among the Gentiles in how we as citizens relate to earthly authorities. That falls under this umbrella of abstaining and living honorably. The second way that we saw that this applied was not just in how citizens relate to earthly authorities, but in how slaves in that day related to their masters. And we saw uh, last time that there are some principles that apply for how we relate to our employers and employees if we are in those similar situations. And this time we want to see... Thirdly, that abstaining from fleshly lust and acting honorably falls under this category of how husbands and wives relate to one another. So 1 Peter 2, 11 through 12 is this overarching principle that we must keep in our minds as we look at 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. And what we see in 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7 is that there is this call for gospel-driven, humble obedience. So let's look at the text, and we'll, we'll notice some significant themes that show up as we make our way through. 1 Peter 3, verse 1 says this, Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands. The idea of, of being submissive we'll unpack in a little while, but it's interesting that that idea of submissiveness is the same submissions, the same word that's used to refer to Jesus as he submitted to his parents. Wives likewise be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, and that is a reference to uh, those who are not saved, those who have not trusted in Christ for salvation, 
They, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives. Now, that word conduct should prompt something in your mind. The word conduct is something that is used uh, majorly by Peter in this epistle to point out the actions that are to result for us. So, 1 Peter 1.15 says, As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. There's another passage in 1 Peter. 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 12 says that we are to have our conduct honorable among the Gentiles. 1 Peter 3.16 tells us that those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. So there is this pattern of conduct that a Christian is supposed to have that is going to be radically different from what Peter is going to use in term disobedience. So there is the potential here in verse 1 for... Wives to live in such a way that they, without a word, those who do not believe in Christ, that they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Verse 2 continues, when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. In verse 2, that word observe is the same idea back in verses 11 and 12 where the Gentiles see your honorable conduct. In other words, there's something to look at here. It's not just personal, quiet, like inside stuff that, that, is, the, that is visible to others. They're able to see it. It's empirical to have your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. So when they observe your chaste, your pure, your morally unstained conduct or behavior accompanied by, or maybe a better way to translate that would be when they observe your chaste conduct in fear. Verse three, do not let your adornment be merely outward. Arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. That word gentle is the same gentle that is used to describe Jesus when he says that he is gentle and lowly at heart in Matthew 11. This incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, we're told at the end of verse 4, is very precious in the sight of God. Verse 5, for in this manner in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves. Let's, let's stop and take note of this idea of trusting in God. Here, the word is translated trust, but the word is also used in 1 Peter, is translated hope. And that's really what Peter's getting at here, that, that our hope is in God, that, that what stands out about these holy women is that they hoped in God. We see this theme picked up in 1 Peter and 1 Peter 1, 3, where Peter says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1.13 continues that we are to rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter 1.21, Peter continues that he's discussing what Christ has, what God has done in Christ, that he raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. 
Later in chapter 3, Peter is going to tell us that we should be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. That's the same word here. It's just the verb form of hope. So we're trusting, we're hoping. These women of old in former times, what set these women apart was that they were women who trusted or hoped in God. And here is how these women adorned themselves. They also adorned themselves being submissive to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. That's a reference to, to Genesis 18.12. Pastor Harris touched on that a couple weeks ago when he covered Genesis 18. That There is that situation where uh, the angels come and tell Abraham about this time next year you're going to have a son. And there's an offhanded, like kind of almost an aside comment where Sarah references Abraham as Lord. That is more than likely what Peter has in mind here. Verse 6 continues, whose daughters you are if you do good. There's that conduct. There's that tangible, empirical Conduct that we see back in 11 and 12, if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Verse 7, husbands likewise dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life. Paul emphasizes this concept in Galatians 3.28 where he says, there is no longer male or female. We are equal in Christ. We are co-heirs together of the grace of life. And he concludes verse 7 with this warning that your prayers may not be hindered. These verses happen right before we get to general instruction concerning persecution. What's going to happen if you suffer unjustly? What should your response be? How should you react? And, And in these texts, that follow, we are going to see some anchors for for where Peter is going, and we'll look at those in time. So two points this morning, and they're probably pretty self-evident. I'd like for us to look first at Peter's command to wives. Peter's command to wives. And the second point, Peter's command to husbands. Point number one, Peter's command to wives. And, And what is that? Peter's command to wives, God's command to wives, is to humbly submit. Let's consider the culture and the context in which Peter is writing these words. Some of the cultural background. There was this prevailing notion in Peter's day that women were by nature inferior to men. That women were were understood to lack the capacity for reason that men had. They tended to be ruled by their emotions. And so as a result in that day there was this sense of, of women being untrustworthy. They tended to be viewed as contentious. They were prone to poor judgment it was supposed in that culture. They had a greater tendency toward immorality and wickedness. And it was best if the woman basically just obeyed her male superiors and and was quieted that way. Traditionally, in, in marriages in that day, it was expected that the wife would have no friends of her own. But she would adopt the husband's friends as her own and adopt his religion as her own, as well as any gods that he served. It's pretty distorted 
misunderstanding of what we understand the Bible to teach about women. Because against the cultural misunderstanding of women, the New Testament is countercultural in that way, in, in that it promotes the equality of women. The Gospels show us this revolutionary treatment that Jesus gave women. He commended them. He listened to them. He valued them. He took time away from the important stuff, as the culture would term it, to associate with women. This paradigm then is able to be taken into the early church and, and grows out of it. We, if you read through the book of Acts, you see women all in the book of Acts. Women like Lydia or Phoebe or Priscilla and many others who dot the book of Acts in the New Testament as women of significance who had importance in the life of the church. So what Peter is instructing here is nuanced from the culture. It's different from the culture. This conduct is going to stick out. It's going to be noteworthy. It's going to be, really, you do that? Are the commands here, so, so one of those, if we take the culture and the context into consideration, one of the arguments that is advanced is that these commands that we read here in the first six verses of 1 Peter 3 and even verse 7, they're given to the wives and it's culturally bound. In other words, the modern church, 2021 churches, ought to abandon these commands because it's bound by the culture. Well, that's not accurate because this paradigm is seen in what uh, Mr. Holman read for us this morning in Ephesians chapter 5. And this paradigm pictures the relationship of Christ to his church. So therefore, this principle of submission that Peter is calling for here is not something that is just culturally bound to these uh, churches that he's writing to. It is something that carries through into our day. But at the outset, it's important for us to acknowledge something. It is important for us to acknowledge that over the centuries, there has been a tendency of some to come to this passage to enable and encourage abusive tendencies. That, that men seeking to exert their power and their authority and their dominance come to this text and unfaithfully encourage and enable abuse, whether that's emotional abuse or physical abuse. But those tendencies must not allow us to, to jettison ourselves from the responsibility that this text gives to us. So look with me in verses 1 and 2 and let's dig into what the text is telling us. So wives likewise, and that word likewise refers back to the pattern of reverential submission that we see that all of us are to have towards the authorities that God has put in place. In the same manner... Now, the most immediate reference for the likewise is going to be how slaves relate to their masters. And let's be clear at the outset, there is no equality between how, how masters treat their slaves and how husbands are to treat their wives. Wives are not slaves to husbands, but there is a pattern of respect and reverence that is a common denominator there. And that's what Peter has argued for back in verse 13, that these authorities, that these governing 
powers that are put in place, that our posture is to be one of humble, respectful, reverential obedience. We also saw last time, though, that there is a check and balance on that. This is not universal obedience to the extreme for the end of obedience. There were times where Peter himself was disobedient to heavenly authorities because sin was in play. He said that he must obey God rather than man. And that standard applies to this paradigm. Wives, if your husband compels you to do something that is sinful or morally wrong, this command to submit is not absolute. Your command to fear God and to love him and serve him supremely trumps this command. So wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands. This word submissive has the idea that wives are called to submit, and we see in this next phrase, to their own husbands. This is not to every man in general. How messed up would that be? How confusing would that be? Well, the question must be asked, what is submission? What does Peter have in mind here when he says to be submissive? Submission is placing oneself under someone else, consciously, willingly, and totally. You're aware of what you're doing. You are in favor of what you're doing, and you're wholeheartedly doing what you're doing. So submission, placing oneself under someone else, consciously, willingly, and totally. We have to be careful because uh, a lot of people come to this call to submission and they say, ha, see, we see that women are inferior to men. This call to submission does not imply inferiority. It, It should not be something that husbands that you lord over your wife. Ha, see, you're called to submit. I'm not called to submit. We are all called to submit to God. As a matter of fact, later in this text, Peter is going to equate, he's going to say that we are co-heirs. We are being heirs together. That's the equality that we have in Christ. And Peter affirms that. The goal of submission by the wife in this text here has a unsaved husband in view here. Notice what he says. Peter says, be submissive to your own husbands that even if some do not obey the word. So he's envisioning a scenario where the wife is saved and the husband is saved. Well, what happens in that situation? The wife is to be submissive. Imagine a scenario where the woman is saved and the husband is not saved. In that culture, she would have an expectation to accept her husband's gods and religion. And Peter says, to the extent that you are able to submit to him without disobeying God, you are to be submissive to your own husbands. That even if some do not obey the word, they without a word, and what he has in mind there is not that that a wife, a saved wife would never share the gospel with her unsaved husband, but that there would not be a nagging, annoying persistence of sharing the word. 
that they without a word may be one. They may be converted. They may be brought over by the conduct of their wives. Notice that they are one by the conduct of their wives and that conduct is observed. It's something that they see. When they observe your chaste, pure, morally unstained conduct accompanied by fear. Pure conduct speaks to the fact that the call to submission has moral boundaries and that affirms that fact that that the call to submission here is not absolute, that you're not to submit if it causes you to sin or to do that which is wrong. How would your conduct be chaste in that manner? But he also says that they observe your conduct that is accompanied by fear or that is in fear. This fear or reverence goes back to the fear that believers are to have of God. We see this in 1 Peter 2 verse 17 when Peter tells us to honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. In other words, wives, why are you to submit to your husbands? Because you fear, cherish, respect, value God. It's not because of the worthiness or excellency or withness of your husband. It is because of how supremely valuable God is to you. And because you love him and respect him and fear God, you submit to your own husbands. Peter continues in verses 3 and 4. He says, Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, putting on a fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. This word that we see in verse 3, adornment, is the word cosmeo. Some of you uh, are picking up on, on another word that we have in our language that may be similar to that. And the word adornment here refers to that which serves to beautify or that with which one tries to appear attractive. So ladies, specifically wives, what is it that adorns you? What is it that, that makes you beautiful? Adornment, that Greek word cosmeto, is where we get the word cosmetics from. And that's a huge pull for us. And Peter addresses that here when he says, don't let your adornment be merely outward. And he gives three illustrations of that. Arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. What's interesting about this is he is not prohibiting these three things. That last phrase, putting on fine apparel, the word fine is, is added in. It, it could be rendered um, putting on clothing. So if he is calling for a cessation of all of these things, we're all in trouble for multiple reasons. He is not arguing that these things should not be done. He's arguing for why they are being done. Last year in 2020, it was estimated that U.S. consumers spent over $80 billion on cosmetics. 
a growing number of that is going um, towards uh, males. With all of the coming of, of Zoom meetings and, and uh, virtual meetings, it's no longer enough for like, you know, men to just throw on a shirt and pants and go to work. They want to look good on camera. And so there's a growing section of the market that is of the cosmetics industry that is appealing to men. What helps us understand what Peter's getting at here is these words merely and rather in verses three and four. Do not let your adornment be merely outward. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart. He is, again, Peter's not condemning anything in this list, but he's helping us consider the extent to which we rely on those things to measure our beauty. The caution that Peter has in view here, and in this day, the arranging of the hair and wearing the gold or putting on fine apparel, those things could be viewed in the culture as excessive or seductive. So what Peter is warning against here is people in in these churches that he's writing to presenting themselves in a way, wives in particular, presenting themselves in such a way that is excessive or seductive. Well, those principles of modesty apply over to our day, that we ought to be cautious that what we wear is not excessive or seductive. But notice what he says in verse 4 that is of much more value than this merely outward adornment. He says in verse 4 that it is the hidden person of the heart. Did you know that you have a person hiding inside of you? What is it? This identifies clearly what is important to God. Recall what, what David or recall what God said to Samuel as he was looking through Jesse's sons. He said, Man looks on the outward appearance. Where does God look? He looks on the heart. Proverbs thirty one thirty tells us that beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. The hidden person of the heart is not something that can be seen. It's not your split personality. It's not a second you. But we can identify in the personality and character that you possess. What strikes me as awesome about this is the values that accompany this hidden adornment. Notice that they are incorruptible. Ladies, have you ever gone to use a cosmetic accessory and it's been corrupted? Like maybe one of your kids took it and decided that they wanted to cut it or rub it somewhere and they just totally mess it up. It's ruined. These inward adornings are incorruptible. They're incorruptible just like the living hope that we have in Christ is incorruptible. And what are these things? These things are a gentle and quiet spirit. The point of these values is to demonstrate the humility and meekness of the wife as she follows the leadership of her husband. And this adornment that we read here at the end of verse 4 we find is very precious in the sight of God. 
In other words, in God's economy, in God's value system, the character and attitudes that accompany a submissive wife are of great worth in his estimation. They are at the top of the list of things that God finds valuable. How awesome is that? That God does not base his value of you based on your physical appearance. That the way that he values you and treasures you is off of your personality and character. What you exude as, as your inner person. Well, Peter provides encouragement in verses 5 and 6 for the wives that he is writing to and for us. He provides examples of those who prioritized inner adornment from the Old Testament. We, we read here in verse 5, for in this manner. So the people he's about to bring in as examples, they did not let their adornment be merely outward. They let it be the hidden person of the heart. They are described as holy women who trusted in God. What a description to be associated with. A holy woman who trusted in God. Trusted, hoped. We already saw the links that Peter has established in this letter to our hope being in Christ. And it's important for us to note that because these holy women hoped in God, they submitted to their husbands. The hope in God is, is the motivation for submission. They hoped in God. We're given the example of Sarah. And here, Peter equates submission with nothing less than obedience. Notice what he says. Holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham. Her posture towards her husband was one of reverence, respect, and submission. And so Peter concludes then that wives who follow in that pattern are of the same family as Sarah. That's not to say that everything about Sarah is to be emulated. If we look back at Sarah's life, I mean, she was complicit in Abraham's scheme in Egypt when he went down and said, oh, how about we pretend that you're my sister? That, that, that was an opportunity where she should have pushed back and said, that is wrong. I'm not going to do that. Peter is not calling on us to wholeheartedly embrace everything that Sarah did, but she did get this aspect right. Notice how he ends verse 6. He says, if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Do good, we've referenced, points back to how our conduct is supposed to be as citizens of heaven. That we are to follow God supremely. We are to do that which is morally right. But then there's this phrase, not afraid with any terror. Do you pick up the tension between the way that this verse ends and the fear that we have in verse 2? We're, we're, the, the, the wives are winning their husbands by chaste conduct that's accompanied by fear. 
But in this text, in verse 6, he says, Whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. There is a different fear that is envisioned here than in verse 2. In verse 2, we saw that that fear is a fear of God, that it is a, a desire to not do anything that would be displeasing or cause reproach on the name of God, and so that dictates and conforms how we live our life. But here there's something different. The hope and trust in God causes the wives to do good and not be afraid. Afraid of what? There are several causes that women had for fear in this culture. They could have harsh treatment from their husband, especially those who had unsaved spouses. Or even violent abuse, whether physical or emotional. So how, how is that woman supposed to make it through? How is she supposed to survive? Her hope is in God. That, that he is the God of all of the earth. He is the judge of all the earth. And will he not do what is right? Peter here is not advocating passive acceptance of this abuse or treatment. He is rather pointing the wife in the direction of true hope found only in Christ. Wives, if you find yourself in a position where there is physical, emotional abuse, you have a responsibility to, to seek help on that. To get counsel on that. If you find yourself in a position where your husband is demanding that you do things that are against what God has said, you have a responsibility to obey God rather than man. So some applications, some conclusions, thoughts. Wives, do you view your submission to your husband through your submission to God? Do you submit to your husband because of your fear of and respect for God? Is he the reason why you submit to your husband's husband? Second, how do you seek to change your husband? That's really what uh, a saved woman is hoping to do with her unsaved husband in the first couple verses. How do you seek to change your husband? Is it through nagging or is it through your quiet and gentle spirit of submission? One of the things that I remember hearing, not just from my mom, but from other women who uh, I have been able to talk to, even some of you this past week, was... God is able to do more to my husband than I'm able to do to them. And I remember growing up, my mom saying this, and it, it haunts me to this day. God is capable of moving you better than I ever can. And so my, I remember times where my mom and dad would have times of conflict. And my, wife, and, and my mom would say, I'll pray about it. I felt bad for my dad. Because a woman who prays to God, her father, the one that, that has saved her, when her hope is in God, there is power there. Wives, let me encourage you to pray for your husbands. 
When, when there is conflict, you see things a certain way. They see things a certain way. They believe they ought to do this. And, and you don't feel peace about it. Pray for them. Imprecatory prayers, persuasive prayers, beseeching prayers, pleading prayers, pray for them. Wives, where does your attractiveness come from? Do you worry about the outward appearance in unhealthy or even idolatrous ways? So think about the proportion of time that you spend on the outward adorning compared to the inward adorning. That's what is of most value to God. So wives, as, we, as you seek to fear God and respect him and reverence him supremely above all things, that is what matters most in God's economy. What does that proportion look like? What areas of submitting to your husband do you find difficult? This was a great opportunity for discussion uh, with my wife this past week. What areas of submitting to your husband do you find difficult? And she gave me several of them. And, and they are understandable and they are relatable and I get where she's coming from. Wives, have you discussed them with your husband? Does he know that these certain things are things that you struggle with when it comes to submitting to him? It could be finances. It could be where you go on vacation. It could be wherever it is, whatever it is, discuss it with them. I, uh, on the counsel of Pastor Harris and, and just talking with other people, I talked to some of you this week who have been married much longer than I have. And, and kind of the common thread and the wisdom that I attained from them was communication is so important. Communicate, 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 communicate. So, wives, does your husband know that you struggle in these areas? Have you discussed them with your husband? Point number two, Peter's command to husbands. Some people say, well, how come there's six verses for wives and only one verse for husbands? Can I submit to you that there is so much in verse seven for husbands? I, I just, there were daggers all through me this week as I was studying verse seven. Verse seven reads, husbands likewise dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. Verse seven begins similarly, husbands likewise. And what Peter is doing here is he is using this to indicate that the wife and the husband are being discussed in relation to each other. They're part of the same unit. And he says, husbands likewise, dwell with them with understanding. The, the phrase literally reads, dwell with them according to knowledge. This word dwell has the idea of cohabit or to do life together. To, to, to live together in a close, personal, even intimate way. Dwelling with, your life, dwelling with your wife, men, is not something that is merely transactional. So, a thought for us husbands. How do we cohabit with our wives in an understanding way or according to knowledge? What knowledge does Peter have in view here? 
I think there's three aspects of knowledge that Peter has in view here. One, the knowledge and realization that you as a husband are a co-heir with your wife. That she is not on a different level than you spiritually. She is an equal with you spiritually. You are both heirs of the grace of life. That knowledge changes how you relate to her. She's not just a servant or a slave. She is an heir. Second aspect of knowledge, the knowledge of relating to your wife in a humble way. The whole overarching principle is that we ought to abstain from fleshly desires. Pride is numero uno on the fleshly desires list. So men, there is an aspect of relating to your wife in a humble way that takes knowledge. Third aspect is the time and experience of cohabiting and that enables you to really know your wife. As men, we tend to gloss over the time needed to really know our wives. That's what enables us to live with them in an understanding way. The time. So, husbands, how sensitive are you to listening and growing in your knowledge of your wife? Are there times where you can tell she's agitated and you say, hey, is everything okay? Yeah, I'm fine. And you leave it at that. Or are you patient enough and humble enough and have the time to be able to sit and listen and grow in your knowledge of your wife? So husbands, we are to dwell with our wives with understanding. The second aspect of this verse is giving honor to the wife. Giving honor, giving respect, giving elevated status. To the wife is the second command that Peter gives us as husbands. The idea of honor here gives the idea of priority treatment. Your wife, husbands, is to be cherished by you. She is to literally and figuratively feel the love. So, men, how do you give your wife A-list treatment? How do you give her elevated status above everything else? One of, one of the illustrations that comes to my mind is uh, the A-list preferred status that, that some people who fly on Southwest have. You get a plane ticket and you have the option to be in the pre-boarding section. You can pay more money and you can be in that pre-boarding list. And so when they start, man, you can be one of the first 15 or 20 people on the plane. And then there's the rest of us, you know, who get our boarding passes and we're like in B or C boarding group and we're in the very back of the plane, right next to the bathroom, squished in between two people. Where's your wife in that economy? Is she on the A-list select pre-boarding status or is she back in C group getting what's left when she gets on the plane of your life? This honoring of the wife is primarily relational. So how do you prioritize and give honor to your wife in your thoughts? How do you prioritize and give honor to your wife in your words? How do you prioritize and give honor to your wife in your actions? 
What touches, words, and gifts bring her joy? That is all part of giving honor to the wife. Do you give honor to her by speaking kind, affirming words into her life? Does she know that you value her and treasure her more than anything else on this earth? We see that dynamic in Ephesians 5, 25 to 29, where we have the responsibility, husbands, to love our wife like we love ourselves. And that relationship mirrors the way that Christ loves his church. So picture how Christ loves the church and honors it and cherishes it and delights in it. Husbands, is that how you delight and love and cherish your wife? The verse continues that we are to give honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel. The acknowledgement of of the woman as the weaker vessel does not diminish her equality with man before God, but it emphasizes the distinct advantage that oftentimes men of that day and even in our day have over women in most cases physically. There is a sense in which a man could force his wife to submit to him. And Peter here is pushing back against that. Just because you're bigger than them and stronger than them does not mean that that's how you live with them. You give honor to them as to the weaker vessel. The honor the husbands are to give their wives is in keeping with this idea of them being weaker vessels. 2 Timothy 2.20 says this, In a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. That's not a knock on women to be called a weaker vessel. That elevates their value. Maybe you have a china cabinet at home that has china or some other fine vessels in them and you do not use them commonly. You use them for special occasions. You use them because they are more valuable. You use them sparingly. So husbands, as you live with your wife in an understanding way, do you take into consideration the fact that she is a weaker vessel? Do you seek her thoughts and opinions? Do you take the necessary time to listen to her needs? Or do you just plow ahead with your plans? Come on, we're along, you're along for the ride. As stronger vessels, it can be easy for us to take advantage of our wives and call them to do more than they are able to do. Part of living with them with understanding is treating your wife as more valuable than yourself. That's the principle that we're told in Philippians 2. This is something that I struggle with and wrestle with because I am type A personality. Let's get it done. Let's, you know, knock it out. And there have been times in, in my marriage with Amber where she has had to say, I can't do this. You're doing too much. I cannot, I'm, I'm not strong enough to be able to do this. You need to pull back a little bit. Will you please pull back a little bit? Part of living with our wives in understanding ways, husbands, is treating her as more valuable than yourself. 
We're told also in verse 7 that we are to give honor to her as to the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life. Think about what a concept to meditate on. That your spouse is on the same plane in the sight of God. That, that you will get to enjoy heaven to the same degree. That you will have the, the blessings of God to the same extent. Being heirs together of the grace of life is a reference back to chapter 2 where we read this in 1 Peter 2 verse 24. Peter says, Jesus, he himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. We are now heirs. When we trust in Christ for salvation, we have have been separated from death. We are now given to life to live for righteousness. And we're able to do that together. As being heirs together of the grace of life, finally, that your prayers may not be hindered. This warning has me quaking in my boots, men. Because Peter concludes with this stern warning. The warning is this. Failure to heed the instruction given will result, men, in your prayers being hindered. How are our prayers hindered? That was, that was the question that, that as I started preparing this even several weeks ago, perplexed me. How is it that my prayers can be hindered? Because God is all-knowing. He knows what we have need of before we pray at Matthew 6, 7, and 8 says. So how are our prayers hindered? The word hindered here means to prevent the progress or accomplishment of something. Listen to these words from James 4, 1 to 3. He says, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. There's fleshly desires. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask, there's praying, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures, desires, fleshly lusts. Look with me at 1 Peter 3, verses 10 through 12. These are, these are verses after verse 7, and it helps us understand in what sense our prayers could be hindered. Verse 10 of chapter 3. 1 Peter 3, verse 10. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. If you flip a few pages over to 1 Peter 5, verse 5, Peter again helps us understand this idea of of hindering of our prayers. 
First Peter 5, 5. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. The point is this. A husband who doesn't humbly lead his wife in understanding and honor her as a weaker vessel and co-heir of life. And that's what Peter is presenting here in verse 7. A husband who doesn't humbly lead his wife in an understanding way, honor her as a weaker vessel and co-heir of life, has his prayers hindered because he has a root of pride in his life. God is against you. He is at odds with you. Consider this for a moment. Pride is exalting yourself. It's, it's wanting what you want when you want it for as long as you want it. Which is what we do naturally. P, uh, Paul assumes that in Ephesians 5. five. No one hates himself. Therefore, I take this passage to be a stern warning against pride that can creep into the life of a husband that causes him to pridefully cohabit with his wife in a selfish way. That action causes him to be at odds with God. And God actively resists the person who does wicked and seeks his own good. So, husbands, the stakes are high here. For me to lead in a selfish or prideful way and to be at odds with God? So some observations and thoughts for husbands. How do you seek to humbly live with your wife? How do you humbly lead your wife? Peter lays out the blueprint here in chapter 3, verse 7. And the blueprint is this. Honor them and live with them in an understanding way. I don't know about you, but I felt really beat up after this week. None of us cut it when it comes to being husbands or wives. The, the best thing that you can do to humbly live and lead your wife better, men, the best way, wives, that you can humbly submit to your husbands, the, be, the way to get better at this is to study and revel in Christ's sacrificial love for you. Husbands, how much do you seek to reflect the love of Christ, that sacrificial love in your marriage? Do you lead your wife spiritually? Do you take time to read the Bible with her? Do you intentionally make it a point to encourage her with scripture or tell her that you're praying for her throughout the day? Husbands, do you submit to God realizing you have one of his daughters to care for and lead? That frightens me. That if I treat my wife improperly, I don't just irritate her dad. I have God to deal with. Are you sensitive to how your anger or even your disapproval may tempt her to be hurt and fearful? 
Husbands, do you publicly affirm and encourage your wife in the things that she does? Does she know that you find her attractive? Do you praise her inner adorning, her character, her personality that resembles Christ? Ray Ortland observes this, which I feel is accurate. He observes deep in the heart of every wife, every spouse, every wife is the self-doubt that wonders. Do I please him? Am I what he dreamed of and longed for? Will he ever get tired of me? And Ray Ortland concludes, a wise husband will spend his life speaking affirming words that will quench those lingering doubts. So men, do you encourage her? Do you affirm her? When she seeks to show hospitality, do you praise her for that and seek to help make that happen? How do you help your wife focus on the inner adorning that Peter speaks of here in chapter 3? Do you encourage her to spend time with God? Do you say, hey, I'll make dinner tonight and keep track of the kids. I want you to go spend a half hour with God. Do you remove things from their obstacles in her life so that she is able to concentrate on that inward adorning? Do you dwell with your wife with understanding and give honor to her as to the weaker vessel? That is a tall task. So for all of us as we conclude, the goal of a Christ-centered marriage should be that your spouse would look at you and say these words. Husbands looking at wives, wives looking at husbands. That you would be able to say this. How you treat me reminds me of how God loves me. How you treat me reminds me of how God loves me. If, if that is not your initial thought and you find yourself struggling to love your spouse, seek to better understand Christ's love for you. It is, it is when we are beneath the cross of Jesus that we have the opportunity to have our love for him and our love for our spouse stoked so that we might love them as God loves us. Regardless of if you are married or not, we all have the responsibility to live under this command of abstaining from fleshly desires and having our conduct honorable among the Gentiles. That we would all live humbly. This is extended to everyone, whether you're married or single or divorced or widowed or not eligible yet. As the body of Christ, as a church, brothers and sisters, we have an opportunity to encourage each other to do good and serve one another in love and humility. By example and by verbal encouragement, do we take the opportunities to do that? Men, those of you husbands who have been married for a while, when you see a younger husband do something uh, exemplary to his wife, treat her in an understanding way or, or helpful way, do you encourage him? Those of you wives who have been married for a while, when you see a wife who is, who is doing a great job of humbly submitting to her husband, do you encourage her in that? 
If you, if you see other examples of that, of, of things that are maybe askew or amiss, do you love those people enough to humbly confront them? Say, hey, that was not loving your wife in an understanding way back there. And that was really troubling to me. Can I pray with you and encourage you about that? Or, or wives to be able to encourage each other to submit to your husbands in ways maybe that you struggle. That is why we are able to be together as brothers and sisters to encourage and strengthen one another. This passage that we looked at this morning is only doable if Christ is your treasure and salvation. With, without the anchor of trusting in him, without your hope being in Christ... We will fail at what is set out in this text. There will be no humble submission. There will be no living with your wife in an understanding way. Because if Christ is not everything to you, it will fall apart. Friend, have you trusted in Christ to cover and remove your sins? That, that's what immediately is before our text this morning. That, that Christ himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Have you trusted in Christ to cover and remove your sins? Jesus offers hope to all. He offers hope to you. He offers salvation and freedom from guilt and shame in him. Will you trust in Christ this morning, friend? You can talk to me afterwards. We can talk through what it looks like for you to trust in Christ for salvation. Brother and sister in Christ, don't, don't walk away from this service with an updated checklist of things you need to do. Look to Christ. Ask him to help you. One of the encouraging things as I was studying and preparing for this week is there's no one in this room who has a perfect spouse. And there's no one in this room who has a perfect marriage. We all have, have room to grow. So let's encourage one another to seek Christ for help. He is the one who works in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. May God give us grace as his servants, as submissive servants to Christ. May God give us grace to humble ourselves before him and seek to reflect the love of Christ for us in our marriages. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity that we have to look at your word. Father, would you strengthen the marriages that are in our church, the families that are in our church, the, the husbands and the wives that we have in this church. Would you strengthen them, Father, to enable them to do that which they are not capable of doing in their own strength? I am weak and feeble and incapable of doing this without your help, God. And so are my brothers and sisters. Would you equip us would you arm us with humility? Father, we don't want to be resisted by you. We want to draw near to you as our Father. Thank you that you promised that, that if we submit ourselves and humble ourselves before you, that we can draw near to you and you will draw near to us. May we do that this week and find your strength 
to be enough for us. In your name I pray, amen.